You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Ethan Harris, and he is Bank of America Merrill Lynch's co-head of global research. Really, I call him the chief economist of Merrill Lynch, but I know uh, that's not his formal title. Uh, he is really a, an institutional guy whose clients are primarily... Uh, big hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds, institutions, as well as the high net worth group at, at Merrill Lynch, uh, which remains one of the largest asset management firms um, in the world. And he's also a, a Federal Reserve expert, an interest rate expert. And we the talk ranged far and wide, everything from what the Fed did right and wrong, what various Fed chiefs focused on, and, and who were the right Fed chiefs at the right moment, uh, and some of the errors made by other Fed chiefs. And we also had a, a conversation about the state of the global economy, which I thought was very thoughtful and interesting. Um, and without going off into the weeds, without getting excessively wonky, it was very accessible. If you're at all interested in interest rates, monetary policy, economics, and the state of the global economy, I think you're going to find this a very interesting and informative, um, dare I say, fascinating uh, conversation. So without any further ado, my conversation with Ethan Harris. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ethan Harris. He is the chief economist of Bank America Merrill Lynch, co-head of the Global Economics Research, a quick overview of his CV. I can't do the, the full one because it'll take the whole show. Um, Ethan regularly ranks in the top of investor polls and forecaster surveys. He helps to coordinate the global economic forecast and manages the developed markets economics team. Before coming to Merrill Lynch, Harris was the chief U.S. economist at Lehman Brothers. Previous to that, he worked as an economist at Barclays and J.P. Morgan. He began his career spending nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia, where he is also a university fellow. Ethan Harris, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's great to be here. So... I also left out, you're the author of Ben Bernanke's Fed, the Federal Reserve after right. Greenspan. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Fed later, but 
But let's just start basically. What what attracted you to economics? <laughs> so uh, I was a history buff as a kid with the name Ethan Harris growing up in in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, of course, everyone talked about Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain my, Boys. My right? wife said to me, she, who yeah. are you interviewing today? I said, Ethan Harris, yeah. furniture guy? I'm yeah, like, no, 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 no. Merrill not, Lynch, not a whole that. different. No, so I was very interested in history. But what got me going into economics was that my older brother came back from the University of Chicago, an economics major, and he said to he started talking about economics with me. I then said, hey, you know, this sounds pretty interesting, you know, because remember, economics is a combination of history and and math, and so it really fit my skill set. And I was a pretty nerdy kid in, in high school, so I decided to spend the summer reading Samuelson's Introductory Economics Textbook, and that hooked me in on economics. So I was an economics major the day I arrived in college. So your brother... Um is out of Chicago, you're out of Columbia. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to pull it forward from another segment. Several economists, most notably Paul Krugman, has divided the universe of economists into freshwater and saltwater yeah. economists or coastal economists. And yeah. uh, do you think that dichotomy holds uh, any any accuracy? Is there something to the multiple schools of, yeah, of economics? Yeah, I think there is, but there's also, as in a lot of academia, there's a lot of debate about pretty fine points. I mean, I think there is a broad consensus in, among macroeconomists about some fairly general things. The idea of the importance of free markets, the idea that you do need a central bank that will manage the economy to some degree. There are people who would argue that we don't need to Fed. Aren't um, those so, in, in opposition? We, we want free yeah. markets but at the same yeah. time, this was always the conundrum with yeah. Alan Greenspan, a true free market Ayn Rand's acolyte who was constantly accused of manipulating the yeah. markets. How do you find a balance? Well, there? I think I think we that's where the uh, the compromise comes. And so you've got the extreme view of no no intervention at all, and then you've got the uh, very aggressive intervention. And I think the reality is, and certainly what I learned at the Fed, which is obviously an interventionist institution, was, you know, you nudge the markets and the economy along. You don't try to to micromanage it. And so that's where the the agreement, I think, is. Now, of course, there's going to be debates, but I think that macroeconomics is not nearly as fractured as it sometimes looks like from the outside. So so let's go back to the New York Fed, where was that your first job yeah. out of Columbia? Yeah, so, who, who was the president at the time of, so, of the Fed? Uh, so, you, so my career started basically with Jerry Corrigan. Oh, of and course. I, and I ended up working closely with him. At one point, I was the assistant corporate secretary, which doesn't sound very prestigious, but it put me in the, the president and first vice president's office doing you know work, system-wide type work, as opposed to just the local bank work. And so I, I learned a lot in that experience. Came to the Fed right out of grad school. The, the great thing about working at the Fed coming out of grad school is in grad school, you learn a lot of math and statistics. Uh, what you do learn at the Fed is how to apply it in a practical way to real questions of the day. And so the, the New York Fed, uh, with a lot of other young economists there, was really a great place to kind of make a transition out of academia into a more practical uh, use of economics. And if I recall correctly, Jerry Corrigan was really a major player um, in, in – if you read the history of the 1987 crash – and my favorite book on the subject is Black Monday by Tim Metz. Mm. Corrigan is really a major behind-the-scenes actor 
working to keep the whole system yeah. together when it looks like it's falling apart. Well, and that's that's the role of the New York Fed. And so we have a history of that, obviously, with every time there's a big financial crisis, the president of the New York Fed is absolutely critical because that's the person who can talk to all the leaders of Wall Street um, and kind of get people's heads around the problem, get people working together. And so we've had multiple instances where uh, in a crisis moment, uh, the New York president has kind of really taken the lead and, and kind of saved the financial system. I, I, I'm thinking of long-term capital management in the late 90s. There was a private sector rescue deal put together, but that was really shepherded along by the New York Fed. And I, if memory serves, that deal might have even been done in the uh, hallways yeah. of the New York Fed, yeah. or yeah. certainly the conference rooms. Absolutely. And, and the... Uh, you know, the idea there was, I mean, actually, if you go back in history, you go back, all the way back to uh, J.P. Morgan back in the, before the Fed existed. That's what he would do. He would gather together bankers and uh, in a financial crisis, which, remember, the Fed, original purpose of the Fed was to prevent financial crisis, not to manage monetary policy, but prevent financial crisis. And so that role uh, has now kind of moved into the New York Fed, obviously working closely with the with the chairman, but that was one of the exciting things about working in the New York Fed, right in the heart of Wall Street and in the heart of the financial system. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ethan Harris. He is the co-head of global economics research at Bank America Merrill Lynch. And I wanted to get into the specifics of uh, interest rates and how they vary around the world. And I understand the academic answer to this, but it's never really been satisfactory. So ballpark, the 10-year bond in the United States is about 2%. If you go to Germany, it's under half a percent. It's about 0.44 as of this recording. And Japan is about 0.2, although given the most recent activity from the Bank of Japan, who knows where that'll be by the time this broadcasts. These are three of the most powerful economic um, countries in the world, yet they seem to have wildly different rates. Why is it that the United States has to pay 2%? Uh, Germany pays less than half a percent, and what may be the most indebted developed nation, Japan, at least major economic mm-hmm. power, is paying less than a quarter percent. How do, how do we reconcile yeah. those? So, I, I, Barry, I think what's going on here is this is actually good news for the U.S. I mean, because what we're seeing in Europe and Japan is our markets that are pricing in a world of near zero interest rates for the indefinite future no inflation for the indefinite future. That means that investors are very pessimistic about the prospects for growth in those countries. Neither country has managed to extract itself from this kind of low, near deflationary kind of environment. The the U.S., at least with 2% 10-year yields, the markets are giving us some some hope that, yeah, the, the U.S. has healed a good deal, that there is some prospect of an acceleration of inflation. The Fed doesn't have to keep interest rates uh, pegged to zero forever. So I think that the, the interest rate differential is telling you something about the, the prospect of the U.S. finally come out, coming out of its malaise, but a lot of doubts in the markets about Japan um, and, uh, and Europe. But, but that spread has been, Germany has been yielding less than the U.S. and Japan less than Germany 
for the better part of a couple of decades. And so I know if I go to a textbook, it's going to say, well, look at the yield versus the real GDP net of inflation. But that's not really satisfying. What I'm hearing from you is that people in Germany and, and to a greater degree Japan are flocking to bonds because they don't have confidence in yeah. the economy? Is yeah. that the implication? Well, no, no, I think that, yeah, I mean, the the, the bond market, the 10-year yield is is an amalgam of people's expectations for where interest rates are going over the next 10 years. Um, you know, if you believe that the Fed has some chance of normalizing interest rates in the next few years, um, you're going to demand a higher interest rate on your 10-year yield because you need to cover the fact that you're you're going to miss out. To go you're going to miss sure. out on those higher rates. So, mm-hmm. um, and I and I think that the, I mean, the longer history of, of super low rates in Japan. I mean, Japan has had not just a lost decade of growth. I mean, people talk about the 90s being a lost decade, but in effect, Japan for 25 years has been a low growth, zero or negative inflation country. Um, and uh, so if you're buying bonds in Japan, you don't feel you need any compensation for inflation. Because uh, there is risk. no inflation. Because there is no inflation. So all you're really doing is parking money there. You're getting the tiniest of yield, and it's a way to not be in equities, which right. for th- uh, 25 years have not exactly been a no, great bet there. It's basically people saying, yeah, I, I'm not, uh, I don't have enough confidence in, in the economy to, to put my money to work. Uh, I'm going to take the safest investment I can and just kind of sit on it. Um, of course, what's also going on in, in both Europe and in Japan is that the central bank is still buying debt. Mm-hmm. And the Fed has stopped their their quantitative easing debt buying program. And so there's an additional gap by, created by the fact that they're still in an aggressive bond buying program to try and artificially lower bond yields as a, in hoping to stimulate their economy. Well, the Fed has kind of backed away from that. So, But I think that fundamentally the, the story here is about – you know, faith in the long-run growth and inflation prospects. It's not like in people are, are bulled up about the U.S. It's just in, you know, kind of in the land of the blind, you know, the one-eyed man is king. And My that's favorite the, that's expression. Where, that's where we are now. So, so although when we look at Germany, despite the issue with the refugees, despite all the other problems there, their economy seems to be running pretty strongly. I mean, that is the strong man of Europe, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're – um, Obviously, they're the one part of Europe that really looks healthy, and uh, it's not that Europe is collapsing. It's just the region has had a big double recession, never really recovered, and so Germany is is kind of the model of strength there, uh, but their interest rates are very tied into what other countries are, are paying. Their interest rates are determined by the same central bank as every other country there, so everyone's kind of tied into this low-rate environment on the assumption that the ECB is not going to be able to raise interest rates anytime soon. So so let's, as long as we're talking about Europe and Germany, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the Swiss, who have been at times running negative interest rates. They are not on the euro, so they're affected by the central bank, but it's not like they're tied to the local currency. Why is Switzerland's getting the benefit of borrowing money at a negative rate. Here, here's my money, and here's a little extra to keep it safe. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that they are – the one way to think of it with Switzerland is 
they're kind of an island of stability in Europe, and mm-hmm. so uh, and have been for centuries. Is over the centuries, argument. and and the the crisis in Europe has caused a lot of money to flow into uh, into uh, Switzerland. That's one reason they 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 can borrow at cheap rates. The other thing is that it's it's created an extremely strong currency, which hurts their economy. They're, right. they're kind of they're they're actually in a sense they're. They're suffering worse from Europe's problems than, than Europe itself is suffering because they end up with a very strong exchange rate. So they push interest rates into negative territory to prevent their currency from being so strong. And um, it's really a desperate battle by uh, Switzerland to avoid importing the, the problems of Europe. This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My special guest this week is Bank America Merrill Lynch's co-head of global economic research, Ethan Harris. He is a former Fed researcher, former chief economist for Lehman Brothers and author of Ben Bernanke's Fed, The Federal Reserve After Greenspan. And let's talk a little bit about inflation. You know, in, in some, or we'll talk about flation, mm-hmm. as, as was famously said. It doesn't look like most of the world is suffering from inflation. We're starting to see signs in the United States, perhaps wages will tick up. In parts of the world, we see deflation. And in other parts of the world, we're seeing disinflation. For the person who may not be familiar with all these flations, what are the differences? <laughs> yeah, so um, you know, inflation is just a general rise in wages and prices and income. So everything's going up in value over time. But it's not increasing your ability to buy things. It's just prices going going higher. So if your wages um, go up and prices go up proportionately, you're, you're exactly what you said. Yeah, you know, you just you're paying more and you're earning more, but you're you're kind it's of running wash. in place. Uh, you know, deflation is when you actually have falling prices uh, across the economy. This is very unusual. It really only happens in depression-like conditions for a sustained period of time. You know, the Great Depression in the 1930s and uh, Japan's lost decade. Um, disinflation is just a slowing of inflation. So you're going from 5% to 3%. So that's the, those are the, 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 the kind of words we bandy about all the time. So now we hear frequently, I see frequently discussions of deflation in commodities, deflation in China, and deflation in Japan. Is that the right way to describe it? Are we actually seeing deflation? In well, I mean, when economists think about deflation, usually they're thinking about something that's sustained over a long period of time. So I think what you're seeing in commodity markets is really a repricing, where you've gone from an environment of consistently high prices to consistently low prices. And so during that interim, you have very rapid deflation. I mean, oil prices have dropped uh, 70% uh, from their peak. So, um, but And that's, that's barely not, over a year, a year and change. That's a year and a half, yeah. And that's a, an amazing drop. I mean, and by the way, this isn't new. I mean, we've seen oil markets just flip. And suddenly a market that had been sustaining at very high prices, suddenly you have an oversupply problem. It just takes years to get rid of it, and you end up in this sustained low prices. Uh, but that's not deflation in the sense that from we're, we're not going to have oil. Oil prices can't drop $10 forever every month because <laughs> they'll go into negative territory. That's more of a one-time kind of big adjustment in the market. Real deflation is when um, year after year, prices keep keep uh, dropping, and it, and really the the kinds of deflation that economists worry about are not so much, you know, a few items like oil uh, falling, but it's really broad based price declines and 
broad-based wage decreases, that's a, those are signs of, of a, a sick economy. So arguably the issue with oil this cycle has been a supply issue. Yeah. We brought Iran online, we brought Iraq online, and the U.S. has gone from a marginal producer to a significant producer, and at the same time the Saudis, who normally would pull back, are, are continuing to pump nonstop. Uh, plus, Russia could use the money, so they keep. So the usual suppliers who would typically pull back aren't. So arguably, this is a supply issue. What sort of deflationary environment mm. is a demand issue? Well, a demand issue would be, uh, in fact, a Japanese experience of the 1990s and 2000s, a classic example of that, where you have an economy that never really gets growing. And so over time, um, p- prices and wage growth fade into negative territory because there's not enough spending going on in the economy. And in Japan's case, I think it was a lot of it was a, a severely damaged banking industry, mm-hmm. severely da- damaged stock market and real estate markets that just kind of hung over the economy for long periods of time, combined with a, a, a complete lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of what the story of Japan was confidence. So those kind of uh, – when you have a, a, a big overhang of of uh, broken markets and lack of confidence, that, those that's really what happens when you have these big deflation episodes. How, how much of the Japan story is, is one of demographics? I keep reading that there's almost no immigration. It's an aging society, and we all know – your prime spending years are your 40s and 50s if you have an aging society. What does that do to uh, deflation and and spending? Well, I think that if you look at the origins of their crisis, it was a massive real estate and equity bubble that burst Mm -hmm. and left them with a crippled banking system and a failure to kind of fix all those problems quickly. And that created this ongoing overhang on the economy. But I think over time, the, the challenges for for uh, Japan have shifted. And what you're talking about with the demographics is really the challenge going forward. It's the fact that, you know, in 1990, when when Japan got into trouble at first, demographic was not an important issue. But now we're in a shrink, a country that's a shrinking population, Mm -hmm. very low birth rates, and very little immigration. And so the new generation of workers is much smaller than the old generation of retirees. That's a really serious challenge uh, down the road for Japan. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is B of A Merrill Lynch's Ethan Harris. He is the co-head of Global Economic Research. He began his career at the New York Fed as a researcher. And and let's talk a little bit about Fed policy, because you mentioned in the prior segment, Japan was slow to respond to their crisis their markets and economy peaked in 1989 and 90. Here it is 25 years later. They're still mired in a soft uh, economic, I don't even want to call it an expansion. It's been a temporary blip up. What did the United States Federal Reserve do right that the Japanese Central Bank failed to do? Well, first of all, we should say that the, the the Fed had the benefit of Japan's experience. And, you know, we know that, for example, uh, uh, Ben Bernanke spent a lot of time looking at Japan and, and the mistakes of, they made. The big difference— Did, Didn't he do a big piece, I want to say, 03, yeah. 
yes. or something along those lines about here's what Japan should have done. Yeah, I Having mean, been a student of the, the Great right. Depression, he said, here's the lesson Japan did not learn. Yeah, so, you know, Ben Bernanke's a very gentlemanly person, and he actually went over to uh, Tokyo and gave some very pointed advice to the government about being more aggressive policy, and they did not like it. And so he was, he, uh, you know, this was something that he took very much to heart, the, the, the importance of a, a strong reaction. What the Fed basically did is that they took a do-whatever-it-takes attitude. And that was, you know, if we cut interest rates and the economy doesn't respond, you cut them again. If cutting doesn't work, you promise to keep them low for a long time. If that doesn't work, you start buying lots of assets. And I think that the, the key to this was it gave a sense to people in the markets in a very panicked condition that the Fed was there, that, they, that the Fed was never going to be out of ammunition. They were always going to have another weapon to, to put to work. And so it was the, the aggressiveness and it was the body language around their actions that we will keep trying until it works that made Fed policy so effective. If you look recently at the European Central Bank's success under Draghi, mm-hmm. it's he's taken a page out of the Bernanke playbook. His idea of do whatever it takes – it, he understands, I think, that you know when you're in a world of panic and, and people don't know how to value anything and uh, and the economy and the markets are are, are c- collapsing, uh, people want a sense that some in some way there's a support system out there. And so I think that that was the basic key to the success was the aggressiveness and the confidence building aspects of the policy response. Is it accurate to say the the U.S led the train in 2008 with an aggressive policy response. Six years later, the Bank of Japan decided to follow suit and begin what arguably is an even stronger policy response, at least relative to GDP. And Europe seems to be the laggard, although they finally mm. seem to be getting on board as well. Yeah, so I, I think that the uh, that the, there has been lessons learned overseas. So the, the Bank of Japan was for a long time almost in denial that these policies work at all. When they first adopted quantitative easing, you know, the big bond buying program. That the, drives rates That drives down, rates close to, to, zero. Close to yep. zero. The first time they adopted that, they – when they uh, before they announced it at the previous meeting, they basically said we are not going to do quantitative easing because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. And then they went the next meeting. They announced it. So if you think <laughs> about it, it's it's really what they what they basically told the markets is we're so desperate we're going to do a policy that doesn't work. Bernanke did the opposite. He said we don't know whether it's going to be a super powerful weapon or not, but we're going to try as hard as we can, and we are going to keep trying until it works. And that's been the change that we saw at the Bank of Japan recently, kind of taking a much more aggressive attitude, um, and with Draghi taking over at the ECB, um, kind of you know learning the lesson that yes, it, you know those central banks have been active, they've been keeping rates low, they've been um, and stimulating uh, growth, but they haven't really made the 100% effort. And that, that's the difference. Right so, so we're recording this the day the Japanese Central Bank surprised investors by forcing rates to go negative. What's the thinking behind that? What's the impact of that action? 
Uh, and what does that mean to the Japanese economy and potentially its stock market? Well, I mean, I, uh, looking at the bigger picture, though, I'm encouraged by the fact that the two central banks, the two big ones that are still easing policy, the BOJ and the ECB, are taking steps in the middle of this very negative stock market we're in right now, this risk-off trade in global capital markets. I think that that's helpful. It's helpful when people, when investors are in a panic mode, you know, getting their mind on something else is quite useful. It's kind of like a slap in the face. And so the fact that both the ECB and the BOJ are now saying we're ready to act and support growth, I think has really helped a lot in in stabilizing equity markets. Now we'll see if it works on a sustained basis, but it's it's very helpful. I think what they're doing is is they're I don't think this policy of going to a small negative interest rate on reserves, which is what they've done. They're going to actually charge banks a little bit for mm-hmm. uh, reserves. That's going to help lower. Uh, in borrowing rates in the economy broadly by a small amount. I think it's more of a symbolic t- gesture, to tell you the truth, than anything major. Um, but I think it's important that uh, given uh, given the fact that the Japanese economy has felt soft lately um, and their, their markets are suffering the same pressure we're seeing in the U.S. and Europe, um, it was important, I think, that the central banks show that it's still in the game, and and I think that's basically what they're doing. So I'm always reluctant to say, well, the stock market reacted. We're up almost 300 points, so therefore this action resulted mm. in that, um, because that's so fraught with danger, and sometimes it's random, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't help but note that as soon as this crossed the tape early, early this morning. Markets around the world flipped from red to green, and it was a substantial positive response. What is it that stock markets like so much about such an aggressive Japanese yeah. central bank? Well, I mean, I think we have to. I think we have to step back and ask ourselves why were the markets selling off so much to begin with? I think the the global equity markets. I think at the beginning of the year got hit from every angle. They're like a collapsing pocket around a quarterback, you know, you had uh, geopolitical risk, you had weakness in China, you had currency and stock market action in China. So that's kind of been people's minds. You've had the weakness in the oil market. So the the global equity market has gotten itself really uh, kind of overwhelmed by, by negative news. Um, and, and as I said, I think what, what happens when the central banks step in is they kind of they, they offer this kind of sense that there is it's not all bad news, that we do have central banks that still can lower interest rates, can create a little bit of stimulus into the markets. And so just kind of getting uh, – kind of changing the story, I think, um, is helpful to the markets. Now, we'll see – Going forward, I mean, we, um, I personally feel the global economy is okay and that this isn't the beginning of a, a big negative market. But, um, but you know, we need to see how well the economy stands up to what have been some fairly uh, ugly developments in, in the markets. So, so let me ask you a completely different question. You alluded to the global economy being okay. A lot of the things we've been talking about have been downside surprises geopolitics and collapsing commodities and weakness in in China. What is required to take place for there to be a global upside surprise in Mm. growth? Or or perhaps asked more more simply, 
what might the pessimists be missing? What might they yeah. not be anticipating? Well, I, I would turn that question around a bit. I don't, I don't think there's any big uh, upside story, actually, to tell you the truth, going forward. I think that um, the the one thing you can always point to is that you have you know some pretty impressive new technology going on in the economy. Historically, we've had these cycles where you'll have, say, a 10-year boom in in productivity due to a tech breakthrough. The breakthroughs we're having now are pretty impressive. They're not, they don't seem to be delivering anything on the economy, but there's always that kind of, uh, that kind of breakthrough. Um, I think that the, the way I would phrase it is what the markets need to do is they need to start, stop hyperventilating about low oil prices and weakness in China, right? Is China really that important to the U.S. economy? I mean, we only sell eight-tenths of a percent of our GDP to China. The Chinese equity market has been off on its own tangent for the last year and a half. It had a huge zoom up and now a big collapse. We didn't pay any attention when it went up. So why are we care if it's going down? It's kind of it's a, it's on its own little planet. It's a very much a, a uh, immature and and almost purely retail market. It's it is. not well yeah. well developed or structured. So in, in in normally you know global markets pay no attention to the Chinese market for just that reason. It's not really integrated. It's not like the close connections you get between European and U.S. markets where investors, there's a lot of cross flow of, of investing and people look at them as mature uh, markets that function uh, effectively. So we, we really need to, investors need to kind of stop hyperventilating about China. Yeah. So if anyone wants to find your research, they they can access your work at uh, B of A Merrill Lynch. Is there other, any other specific places they can read your work? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I don't have a blog out there or anything. I, I write for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So if you are, are a client of the firm in any way, um, you know, um, yeah, you know, you'd have access to all the stuff that we write. And, and by the way, I've got a really great team that works for. I am the pretty face. <laughs> I have a great uh, team. And and that's why you're on radio. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around and listen to our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I was mentioning earlier, my guest this week is Ethan Harris. And Ethan, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. I know many of your colleagues, but I don't think you and I have ever met before. Have, have we? we? We have met before. It must have been much more memorable for me than for you. Was it at a <laughs> dinner? Um, where is did we my, meet? I think we met at, at uh, one of these economics get-togethers, uh, but I definitely one of the Tuesday may, night maybe, dinners. Maybe I only like know you through your personality as a as a great uh, radio host. It's <laughs> um well the personality <laughs> thing. It's all an act. It has it has nothing. Uh, I'm not really like this in, in real life as as much as uh, although if this was an act, uh, it, it would be a tough one to maintain over long periods of time but um um i'm trying to think i'm trying to remember where we met and if it was one of those wednesday night dinners at bobby vans or something like that <laughs> that's the only recollection i have okay. um but it was never a one-on-one -on -one thing it was yeah. if you're in a room with eight or 12 people it's really hard yeah. to yeah i actually met the pope's 
outside money manager <laughs> at an event like that where there's 14 people there and you want to talk to each person for a few minutes, but a two-hour dinner goes by like that. Right. And it's like, ah, I wanted to ask... How is the Pope, Pope allocated? What is, yeah, what is, right. is he a conservative right. or aggressive right. investor? It's, you would think he would have a long-time investment I, I, I hope so, yeah. perspective, uh, although, <coughs> truth be told, <coughs> church has done pretty well on its own. No, and I, I don't think he's, he has any uh, heirs that he needs to leave money to. So. <laughs> That's right. So it's a, whole, it's a very different sort of, uh, sort of investment process. So there is a list of stuff I blew through during the broadcast portion— Okay. That I that I want to come come back to before I get to my favorite um, questions. Okay, we did not talk about uh, the book Ben Bernanke's Fed. Right, and I also I know I'm going to get hate mail. One of the questions I was going to ask is, "Hey, you're describing what the Fed did right. What did the Fed do wrong?" Right. How, okay. So let let me ask you that. So over the past couple of decades. What was it that the Fed did wrong? Do, are they to blame in some degree for the 08-09 financial crisis? Well, I, I think when you look at the, the causes of the crisis, you have to kind of spread the blame pretty widely. I mean, um, for one thing, we all know that the, the regulatory structure of the U.S. financial system was out of date and a leftover patchwork of of regulatory agencies and regulations, and so it really needed reform, but there's kind of a lack of political will uh, to do that. We also know that there was pressure from both parties to promote growth in home ownership mm -hmm. to the point where there's kind of a loss of sight of, you know, whether really it's appropriate for people with weak credit and low incomes to, to own real estate. I mean, and so there's a bit of a political push in, in that direction. I've been, I've been pushing back on that argument because when you, do, when you do the deep dive into warehouses went bad and what sort of mortgages blew up, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, we know Countrywide had issues, but it wasn't necessarily the Citibanks, Bank America, those sort of, of more Wells Fargo underwriters, there was this huge swath of private sector banks. Alan Greenspan called them the financial innovators. And mm. they ultimately ended up going belly up by the hundreds. There was a website called mlimplodemortgagelenderimplode.com. Yeah. I think by the time everything was done, it was almost 500 specific underwriters who had come about in order to create mortgages to sell to securitization. Yeah, and I think that one of the core problems with the way the mortgage market was regulated um, before the crisis was that there were competitive regulators, right? So mm -hmm. if you were, you know, you had uh, state and federal regulators uh, covering different kinds of institutions that were lending into the market. And so it was a bit of a race to the bottom. You know, whoever was the loosest lender got the business, right? right? And so uh, the the inability to have a more integrated, uh, clear uh, ownership of this sector and, you know, who's really regulating and what are sensible rules, I think was a big part of the, the problem. And so I think that the, uh, the Fed uh, shared... Uh, blame with every other regulator not really uh, aggressively addressing what was aggressive lending practices. But it's hard to ascribe blame when you have a system that was so poorly put together to begin with. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I apportion blame to a lot of, lot of 
entities, both private sector and government. But I remember looking at all those private sector mortgage writers, primarily located in California, and I have friends who insist on blaming one party or the other, like two groups. It was the Democrats. It was the Republicans. And really, you can point to all sorts of things that each party did wrong. And when you look in California, that was a Democratic legislature that basically said, why do we want to thwart growth? This mm. is a booming financial sector that's giving mortgages to people who might not have otherwise had it. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you had uh, President Bush and the office of OCC telling state regulators, we're going to federally preempt you and eliminate your predatory lending rules because they conflict with the federal ones. Mm. So it was the Democrats and the Republicans just growth at any cost, and we know what the cost ended up being. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, the lesson of all this is what is that we know that in the, in the housing market, it's important that the borrower have skin in the game, that they have a real down payment, and that they have adequate uh, ability to pay, repay the mortgage based on a sensible uh, estimation of their income flow. So those are two of the very basic things that got lost along the way, and and that is the key. I mean, if you have uh, you the the reason the mortgage crisis was so so virulent is because with all it was because you really didn't need to lose that much money in the value of your house before you're underwater because right. there was almost no down payment, in which case that distressed property becomes a sale. And, a, and every sale creates new distressed properties by creating right. oversupply into the market. So it's critical, I think, the, I think the, the core lesson to me uh, for in terms of regulating the mortgage market is you, you need down payments and you need uh, effective income documentation. Didn't, didn't we at one time require a 20 or a 25% down payment? And if you didn't have it, you had to take out more PMI yeah. insurance? Yeah, the, the to me, the... the uh, um, in the 1990s, you had a fairly sensible mortgage lending practice. When I, I bought my house in, in uh, uh, the early 90s, and we put 20% down, and we really you know, had to scrape and scrim to get the money together. And uh, that meant that, that it would have taken a horrendous housing market for, right. for us to be underwater in our house. And so that was a very kind of safe uh, mortgage to have in place. Um, but when we went to the the more exotic mortgages, were almost no money down, uh, lack of adequate income documentation, all that. Then right. that we knew we were kind of getting over our skis at that point. Uh, <laughs> I love that expression, <laughs> over our skis. I remember the the first time I started reading about piggyback mortgages, where you were borrowing eighty percent uh, from one bank as your primary mortgage and twenty percent from another bank as a down payment, and you would think, well, that's ridiculous until the 120% loan-to-value mortgages came along. So the idea was you could borrow the whole cost of the house plus another 20% to do renovations to make it worth that much more. Yeah. How could those ever ever go bad? Well, uh, yeah, right, yeah. And that, that's the story of that period. And and my, my feeling in real time as I was writing about as an economist was that in the early 2000s, I felt okay about the mortgage market. You know, it was getting more aggressive, but it hadn't reached these very extraordinary levels. In 2004 and 2005, you had this very rapid escalation uh -huh. of exotic mortgages with, with very aggressive features to them. And, and that's what 
kind of set a bell off in my own head worrying about the housing market. Of course, I don't think anyone in the business understood the extent well, of the problem. Well, if you understood housing, you might not have understood the whole CDS market and the how the credit default swaps were built on top of the securitized CDO market. You really, it, it took a while before all those different pieces of the puzzle came into focus. Since you're a global guy, let, let's ask you about our neighbor to the north. During our housing boom and bust, it looked like the Canadians came out pretty well. They have a very aggressive regulatory scheme and just a handful of money center banks. But after our boom and bust, it looked like they just kept going. Mm. What's happening in, in Canada? Well, you know, so, I mean, this is, again, I mean, the the problem, of course, with we know that for the financial cycles over time is that, uh, you know, people learn their lesson and they're very cautious, and then they kind of over time unlearn the lesson. Sure. And so, it takes 25 um, years or so before everybody forgets. Yeah. And so, in the case of when the U.S. went into its uh, its subprime mortgage problem, uh, C- Canadians had learned their lesson from their past housing uh, mm-hmm. crises. So, um, I, I don't think we're seeing anything in, in Canada that, that compares to what happened in the U.S. at the peak of the crisis, though. I, I think that Canada, um, you know, is has, you know, has things under control there. So I don't, If memory uh, serves, they lowered their down payment amount that you have to have mortgage insurance. I'm doing this off the top of my head. It was either 25 to 20 or 20 to 15 percent mm-hmm. if you put less than 15 percent down. You needed PMI insurance. Is, is are you familiar at all know. with that? I don't know. But I remember a few years ago that was a big change, and people were up in arms about it. And I'm like, wait, we don't, we no longer have a mortgage. It mm-hmm. doesn't seem we have that mortgage insurance requirement mm-hmm. uh, that the U.S. used to. And I'm, I'm gonna have to look into, look into that and see um, why that went, why and when that went away. So, so let me shift gears a little bit and talk to you. Um, about yield curve, I know this is an area you're you're very interested in. Um, why is the yield curve so important? What does it mean to looking at future economic activity? Well, I mean, remember the yield curve is telling you what people is in effect telling you what people expect to happen to interest rates over the say if you're comparing one year yields to ten year. If the 10-year yield is higher than the one-year yield, it must mean that investors expect interest rates to go higher, right? The, mm-hmm. One way to think about it as a rough approximation is the average one-year yield every year for the next 10 years should roughly equal the current 10-year yield. And that, mm-hmm. that way you're getting the same investment return. Um, and so the, the, the yield curve right now is pretty steep. And so the yield curve is telling us um, that the market's – are pretty comfortable with the idea that the Fed's going to be raising interest rates that, you know, 10 years from now we're going to have an interest rate of above 2%. Um, and um, now it's not saying that they're going to be high interest rates because mm-hmm. we're going from zero. Um, but it's a, it is a, it is a, a bit of a, a vote of confidence in that, you know, we're not stuck forever at zero. I mean, there are people out there who say the Fed, it's one and done. The Fed can't, can't hike. Uh, rates are never going to get close to the three four percent they we'd hope they would get to, um, and uh, I think the markets are saying, well, we we think they're we don't think they'll get all the way to that level, but we do think the Fed will be able to hike. 
So, so there is a contingent of Fed haters out there who, who some feel that there shouldn't be a Federal Reserve in the first place. Others feel that if there's a Fed, they should be a little handcuffed and should only have small incremental tools. What is it that the Fed haters get wrong? Well, I mean, first of all, let, let's let's step back and see what's talk about what what economists in general believe. So the uh, University of Chicago has a, a poll they do periodically of forty uh, top academic uh, economists, and one of the questions they ask them is whether it'd be a good idea to go back to the gold standard, right? Okay. Right, and the answer they get is that they have zero of the 40 advocate going back to the gold standard, and the vast majority strongly oppose uh, the idea. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because we go back in time before the Fed existed, um, yes, we had low inflation, but we had a recession every three years, and the the financial markets were extremely unstable. So the, the Fed... Uh, we need some kind of guiding hand in in monetary policy. It may you could argue about whether the Fed should be more or less aggressive, but the idea of not having a, a central bank there, I think history suggests strongly it would be it would be a bad idea. I think the critics of the Fed. Um, what I like about the Fed, and in fact, why I worked there at the beginning of my career is I really believe the leadership of the Fed are technocrats. You know, mm-hmm. they're people who are have that job because they want to, you know, make the economy better. And I don't think that it's a, a, a remarkably non-political institution. Um, and it's and one of the kind of the, you know, n- not only do economists almost all agree that you want um, you don't want to go back to the gold standard, but almost every economist would agree you need an independent central bank. You don't want a politician, right. a political system running your central bank. This is what has gotten countries into serious trouble historically. I'd rather have a technocrat who might or might not be right on what they're doing than have somebody with a political agenda uh, running the Fed. So. so so let's look at some of the folks who ran the Fed. Uh, we could go back to Paul Volcker pretty uniformly looked at as one of the giants of the Federal Reserve. Do you you share yeah. that that belief? Well, I mean, you know, he's kind of like a, when you determine which presidents of the United States are the greatest presidents, it's right. usually the ones that were there during a war, right? It's right. people like... It's people like uh, I always thought it was the tallest one, whoever's <laughs> yeah. tallest. Well, Lincoln wins. gets both. Then, there I you guess. go. Yeah. But it's the ones who go through... Uh, and. Volcker deserves credit as one of the best Fed chairman ever because he stepped in at a time where it took a lot of courage for the Fed to basically say, okay, that's it. Uh, inflation's out of control. We're going to cause a recession, but we don't care. It's yeah. what we have to do yeah. to get uh, we're, we're not the gonna, genie back in the— We're not going to admit it, but the reality is we know that we're probably going to be causing a recession here. And so we're going to—because we're, up to that point, the Fed had done half measures— Inflation was is a ratcheting process. Inflation would go up, the Fed would push it down a little bit, then it would go up some more. And the Fed never really got its arms around the problem. And he came in uh, in an incredibly tough political environment and and stuck to the policy and, and, and vanquished uh, I- inflation. And so I think that, you know, because he was the he did the right thing at an incredibly difficult time, you have to rank him as one of the top ever. And and so let's fast forward. How is Janet Yellen Yellen doing? What is she now? 
barely two years in the job, not yeah. even. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at it again. So you have to give high marks to her predecessor because he because he well, you think about the the modern history of the U.S. economy. You've got you know three big events that that where the central bank had to really intervene. You had the Great Depression where the Fed actually did a poor job and right. didn't really do its job of keeping the banking system going. Then you had the the fighting of inflation by Volcker, a, a, a successful war there. And then you had Bernanke come in and say, listen, I'm not going to listen to the critics. I'm going to focus on getting growth in the economy back. I'm not going to listen to people who say I'm creating inflation. And he or hyperinflation or and hyperinflation. the collapse of the dollar. Right, all those <laughs> predictions about he, that that what he's doing, and so you have to put very high marks on him. For for Janet Yellen, it's more of a she's in a, in a less dramatic position. She's making less important judgments. She hasn't been faced with the kind of challenge. But but I'm I think that she's doing a good job. I think she was a good choice as a Fed she, chairman. She's a stay the course sort of. Uh, not not going to undo what Bernanke she's, did. She's very much in his uh, mold, no question about it, yeah. And, and then I would be remiss if I did not mention um, the Federal Reserve Chairman, formerly known as the Maestro, emphasis mm. formally, yeah. Alan Greenspan saw his reputation go from yeah. the man who could do no wrong to the yeah. goat of the financial crisis. Yeah, and so um, I— in my the book I wrote about Bernanke, I had two chapters on uh, on Greenspan because you can't really talk about his his uh, you know Bernanke without talking about who he's replacing. The first chapter was about what Greenspan got right, and the second was about what he he got wrong. So, which was the um, bigger chapter? <laughs> yeah, well, at the, this was before the the crisis had really played out. So, at the time. You know, your valuation of Greenspan would have been less uh, negative. But what I found striking is that the uh, the the problem that would what happened with Greenspan is that, and this is partly because of the development, frankly, of business uh, uh, television, with uh-huh. the, was that this cult of personality developed around For the sure. chairman, and he became the the face of 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 business, you know, financial markets TV. And so the the uh, the exaggerated description of his powers of you know forecasting and all that was right. was way overdone, and what happened late in his his career is he made some mistakes, you know, such uh, as such I mean as, to me the big mistake was taking rates down below two percent and keeping them there for three years. I think they were at one yeah. percent for over a year, and that. Kicked off yeah. that whole inflationary spiral right. and the housing, and I, and I think so. I, what I felt so I to be you know I think to be honest about it, I have to talk about what I wrote in real time because I, it's twenty twenty hindsight is, mm-hmm. is a little bit unfair. So what I wrote in real time was I didn't understand why he felt so obliged to to raise rates so carefully. You know the gradualist approach, right? Because what happened, you know, as you said, he they'd lowered rates to very low levels. And then they took such a long time to get them back to normal. They didn't. They didn't create any financial restraint. I mean, right. the, it was like they weren't even hiking, because they took all the shock out of it. Uh, the bond market rallied. The equity market rallied. You had a massive expansion in the in cheap credit in the housing market, and so the the, the mistake he made, I thought, in real time. And you know, in hindsight, I thought obviously the mistake looks much bigger. But in real time, I thought, 
why are you being so gentle here? Why can't what what is there a law against raising interest rates fifty basis points? <laughs> and and uh, the other thing that I didn't like about him in real time again, I don't want to be twenty twenty because I think that the that I you know would I have made similar mistakes. I didn't like the way he talked about the housing market at that time. He was a cheerleader for yes. the housing market. And that he should not have been doing that. He he gave speeches that suggested that risks of housing are very low. And um and I and I, I can point back to pieces I wrote at the time uh where I said, Listen, you know, it's not true, you know, Greenspan gave a speech where he said um that uh, you know, real estate markets are inherently local. Uh, you know, they're determined by local conditions. So, and he, it was an argument around there being froth. And that remember his froth speech? Yes, yes, very uh, much. Froth speech in the housing market. But the argument he was trying to make was that they they won't all go up and down together. So they're not that risky, right? Because they'll go move in separate directions. But you're not going to have Miami going straight up and California going straight down. At no, the same well, time. And, and that was the problem is that we knew at the time already that the credit availability had overextended. So, these markets were all joined together by by mortgage rates by, mortga- so. by the the mortgage market a very generous mortgage market and um, a lot of uh, irrational exuberance. So and so so that idea that somehow we could kind of work our way through this without any any kind of problem for the Fed chairman to say that I, I didn't think was right. What was are you saying that was not very responsible? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I'm saying that that you know um, it's kind of a job where if you don't you know don't don't you don't want to at any time kind of be viewed as a cheerleader to the markets. And I think that he ended up sounding like that. I don't think he was intentional. I think that he but he ended up sounding like so. That. So what about the infamous Greenspan put? Was there really such a thing, or was it just the belief by traders that? Every time the market throws a hissy fit, Uncle Alan is there to, to rescue. Yeah, well, I think that um, there, there is, you know, and if there are, there's always a put from a central bank. But the question is, what's the strike price? So is it an, is it a <laughs> deep out of the money yes. emergency put, or is it right, or is it an at the, so Greenspan? The complaint was. Hey, it's an at-the-money put, and every time the market's no, went negative, and that, and that and that is a problem, right? That's a problem if you, and I think that uh, central bankers debate this all the time about when do you enter, when do you step in, when do you react to the markets? Um, do you? And and the answer is that put needs to be priced, you know, pretty out of the money, so that. People don't get this sense that the central bank's always going to rescue them, and that that was the so let, having too generous a put, I think you could argue at times that that was one of the problems Greenspan had. That that makes a lot of sense. So so we've talked about Bernanke, Greenspan, Yellen, and Volcker. Um, that's a pretty interesting run of people. I think folks are not nearly as familiar with the local. District Federal Reserve branch presidents. Um, who are these guys, and how important are they to the system? Well, the the Fed is a, a really uh, almost bizarre structure because remember it was created way back at the beginning of the last 100 century, a hundred right? years yeah. ago, and it was designed to have checks and balances in the sense of not putting all the power in Washington and and spreading out these presidents across the country. So there's almost a deliberate. Uh, decentralization. Um, I think that the the system works okay. I think that you get uh, you get very different views. 
you have some some of these reserve banks are the, pre, the presence of traditionally a hawk and very anti-inflation. Uh, you know, the the obvious one might would be the Kansas City Fed, where we've had a, a string of very uh, hawkish presidents. Um, and then you have others who are, are very dovish. Uh, you know, the Boston Fed president uh, has has been on the dovish side. Uh, Charlie Evans of Chicago on the dovish side. And so I think that you, I think that that's a healthy debate. And mm-hmm. I and um, I think that the the uh, the the good thing about the Fed, I think, and the way it, the the policy process works is that there's a, it's a respectful group, right? The Fed, the chairman doesn't totally dominate the committee, but there's a sense of respect and coordination among them. So even with dissents and disagreements and all that, you end up with a, a sensibly debated conclusion. I mean, the advantage of having a committee decision-making is that committees make fewer mistakes than individuals. In this case, the committee uh, may be a little bigger than it would be optimally if you look mm-hmm. at models of optimal-sized committees, but having a committee is helpful because it avoids um, you know, somebody who kind of just gets off on the wrong track and, and, and doesn't listen to enough voices. I recall, here's a little Fed trivia, I recall at one point in time Greenspan actually had exercised the right to raise or lower interest rates on his own between meetings, and the Fed ultimately reined that in. I want to say 1990 or 91. There was a, uh, an intra-meeting cut that seemed to really generate a lot of pushback amongst mm. the, uh, the president. Yeah, and I think if you look at the – when Greenspan first came in, he faced a pretty fractious committee. Mm-hmm. And I think over time as his reputation built and he kind of took command of the committee, you probably had things go too far in the other direction with the chairman right. kind of – dominating too much. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that Bernanke did when he came in is he he deliberately, I think, came in to reduce the cult of personality around the chairman. Um, I mean, remember that when, when Bernanke retired, he did not have, he didn't go to Jackson Hole for his last meeting there because uh, Bernanke didn't want you know, the kind of sending off on a carpet kind of uh, approach. Uh-huh. He wanted to, for, the chairman is, the, is obviously the most important member of the committee, and it's important to have a strong person who can gather consensus together. But you don't want to have a, a structure, a decision-making process where there's a complete control by one individual. And, and you know, he was chairman of the Princeton Economics Department. I imagine that's a fairly... I don't know if genteel is the right word because of academic politics, but uh, I would imagine that's a pretty good preparatory for for being a, a Fed mm. chairman, sort yeah. of wrangling all those cats together. It, it, and, there's and, some of that, and I, but I think that the uh, the the, uh, the big difference. I mean, obviously, the the Fed is making decisions that have to be made quickly and aggressively, and so. You um, and I think that there's a, that sense there, and that's why you need a, a you need to have a reasonably strong chairman. There, there are times in which you really have to move. You know. So let's transition from government to private sector to Wall Street. You were at the New York Fed for nine years, and then you ended up at Barclays and J.P. Morgan, and ultimately Lehman Brothers and Merrill. What was the transition like from being on the government side to the 
Wall Street private sector. Well, I mean, one of the things you discover immediately is that everything moves at 100 miles an hour mm -hmm. if you work on the street. Um, you know, in the 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 in at the Fed, you know, I would do briefings before the FOMC meeting. So I would uh, brief our local president in New York before he got down to Washington to vote on monetary policy. I'd have a three or four weeks to get my presentation together, right? right. And that would be in full time, right? On Wall Street, you know, if something's happening, you 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 know, you got you know two days to put it together. Not you know, if you're lucky, month. if you're lucky, and and you have, uh, but the the point is that um, it, it's uh, it's the pacing of everything. It's the fact that you know you have to, if you're going to be successful on Wall Street, especially in the sell side, you have to be um, willing to change gears like that. You know, something mm -hmm. comes up. You're writing something, and suddenly, you know, it's interesting, but it's not really what everyone's focused on. Throw that out and start over again, because this is the question of the day, and the people want that need fast answers, and that that kind of ability to kind of, first of all, cover multiple topics and many different kinds of clients, and switch gears quickly is extremely important. So you went from a number of sell side shops. Um, uh, and institutional shops to a big Bank of America Merrill Lynch is mm. a giant, really yeah. more of a retail firm. What was that transition? Well, like? I think that the the uh, I don't think it's a, a huge difference. Remember when I when I worked at uh, at Lehman Brothers, it was, I was working in the obviously it's an investment bank, and a lot of my time spent dealing with. Uh, the trading floors mm -hmm. and with all institutional institu traders and, and, and client customers. institutional customers. Um, I'm primarily focused on the uh, investment bank at B of A Merrill Lynch. The new part, which in some ways is 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 fun, is is the retail business, right? So you do need to be able to go and give a dinner speech to high net worth individuals. You know the big clients of our wealth management business. Um, you need to know how to de-jargonize and kind of right. and have two two different speeches you're giving a friendly one and a more uh, technical one. So um, that ability to kind of switch gears, I think, is is a, the one kind of new challenge of moving to a place where you have a, a big retail business. And you were at Lehman Brothers for a good number of years. When when did you start with them? So I was there uh, from uh, from. 96 to the sinking of the ship so really know, 12 years um how did how yeah, did the company yeah. change over that period that well, had, you had to have it. like a front row seat for one of the most fascinating I, in hindsight at the time it had yeah. to be absolutely well, terrifying well i mean so i i got I, you know i've had the fortune and misfortune of being in front row for a number of uh, <laughs> wonderful things you know, pretty awful things such um, as what else besides uh, well the the 911 clearly yeah, um you know watching the planes fly into the building there you know so uh but um and uh, and then being in the front row watching lehman go under mm -hmm. right so Lehman was a uh, had been an investment bank had had problems over the years and Fold uh, took over. Uh, it was a company that that was a uh, work in progress, mm -hmm. kind of reviving itself. And he did a tremendous job of getting the 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 the, the firm back. 
uh, so there were some early scares around the long-term capital sure. period where, you know, funding markets were really tight. You had a very tight uh, market set for a while there. But he kind of built – this was his company that he built – and so, you know, the bank went, the, the, the Lehman went from being, I would say, kind of a second tier to right up there just below the Goldman Sachs of the world. Mm-hmm. So, and so that was a tremendous accomplishment. And then, of course, I think that Lehman fell victim to something that all the investment banks were victim to. We just happened to be kind of at the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. Well, that was the f- yeah. mortgage bonds was them and Bear Stearns primary yeah, we were, sectors. So you were right in the soup. We were right in the soup. And you could argue that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are mistakes made or, that could have avoided uh, some of the pain. Uh, well, the and, big uh, one was turning Warren Buffett down, which I think a lot of people yeah. forget. Buffett came along and made an offer to right. fund Lehman at terms that turned out to be more generous than what he gave Goldman Later on, when yeah, everything was much, yeah. much rougher, yeah. and Fold turned him down. And that yeah. was really, if you want to pick a fatal, that, that might have snatched a defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah. I mean, I wonder whether, uh, you know, he just didn't want, you know, this is kind of like a, a parent who doesn't want to admit their kid's not getting into Harvard, you know? I mean, it's, you know, the firm had big problems, as you said, it because of not just the residential but commercial real estate. That was their bailiwick, right? And, and was, so uh... and so the idea of cutting a deal where you sell assets at a huge discount probably was too much for him to stomach. But in hindsight, it was a massive uh, mistake. He, he yeah. also strikes – now, I've never met the man. I've only read and seen what he said. But he strikes me as a guy that doesn't like to be told – no, and I can't imagine his inner circle were was coming up to him with papers and saying, "Hey, Dick, this is a mess. You have to do something about this." Yeah. He doesn't doesn't strike me of having the temperament that he wants to be told, "Hey, you have a real problem here. Fix it." Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what happened in, in meetings in there, <laughs> but uh, you know, Dick Fold was was definitely a tough dude. To say um, the least. And, you know, and I'd say there are two things that stood out about him. One is a tough dude, and the other was he, you know, lived and breathed, you know, Lehman Brothers. I mean, right. that was, he was in love with his company. This was his baby. And so <laughs> of all the things you can say about him, it certainly, uh, that that stood out. Um, when you were there, la- last question on Lehman, because I really don't want to re- revisit this over and over again. A year or so before everything hit the fan, uh, were there any internal signs of anything, or was it just, hey, listen, the whole sector is emptying, entering a challenging period, and and we just have to fight our way through this? I think that, um, I mean, the lead up to the crisis, it was pretty obvious, I think, to people in the business that there was a domino effect going clearly when bear stearns went down everybody looked around and said who's most similar to bear and the answer was lehman yeah and so uh anyone you know if you were if you were tuned into it uh you knew that every end of quarter earnings announcement was dangerous Mm -hmm. for all the investment banks and um and it was a domino thing it was like all of the investment banks had big problems 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was kind of like, where was the market focus at the time? And so Lehman was in the crosshairs. And um, and um, so you could feel it. Um, the the uh, weekend before Lehman went under, um, I was sitting down with my boss at the time. I was the chief U.S. economist, and he was the global chief. His name's Paul Sheard. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paulson had just announced that uh, – that there would be no government money for Hank Paulson, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for Lehman, and so, so uh, you know, um, Paul says to me, "Well, but they, they, you know, they can't let Lehman go under; the financial markets would collapse." And I said, "But Paul, you know, we may not be in the, our office on Monday," <laughs> and uh, and sure enough, I mean, um, it was, it you could feel. You could feel the 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 the, uh, the how dangerous it was in real time. It was not at all a surprise when the, the 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 over the weekend if they didn't have a deal, they were done. They were done. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. So you mentioned um, Paul, uh, who was uh, your boss at Lehman. Let me shift gears completely and go to some of my favorite questions. Who were some of your early mentors? Yeah. I mean, the the people who kind of influenced me, I, I, I picked three names. You know, I read your questions ahead of time, so I've, I've had to think through it. I think my oldest brother, because he's the guy from who, University of Chicago. Chicago. I mean, he and uh, you know he he's uh, he's a, a, a he really embraced and loved economics. He was inspired by some of the best professors ever. You know, people like Milton Friedman were right. there and stuff. That, that so, was a nineteen twenty seven Yankees at at the they, University they had, of Chicago. They did, and you look at all the Nobel prizes that came right. out there. That was a, a great uh, department. What did he, he end did. up doing with the economics? Well, he degree. he went ended up getting an MBA and being a uh, uh, in the uh, in the um, hospital finance business. So mm-hmm. so he, he but he so he didn't continue in economics. Um, my thesis advisor was a guy named Phil Kagan, who coincidentally is also a Chicago guy. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like with Kagan is that he was at a, um, at a time where I, you know, a lot of professors didn't seem to kind of want to put out for their graduate student. He was there at Columbia, kind mm-hmm. of a guy who was quite willing to work with you. He was also somebody who, uh, kind of, had a very sober, uh, unbiased way of looking at, at issues and things. So he was quite an inspiration. But the guy who really was the, the – what I find the most interesting is the guy who I think was best for my career was a history professor I had in college. This history prof- – he's a Russian history professor, and he hated the writing he was getting out of his students. Mm-hmm. Um, and he so he decides to teach a writing class – um, and I took the writing class, and that class I'd say of any I've never had a class that that did just made such a big difference in my ability to do. I learned to write. It was a class. practical. It's a practical, hands-on. Every day, somebody gets their paper ripped apart in class, right down to the gory details. And you you know it's kind of like you know you either. You know, you either you know you either survive. You know, if you what doesn't kill you makes you stronger right. kind of a world. Uh, and so, I came out of that knowing how to write, and that that I think is a very important part of what we do. It, it's yeah. amazing what a significant skill set it is, and how often I encounter people who have either developed that skill or or have not. It could not agree more. How significant that is, but it's it's one of the hardest things to teach. You know, it's really hard to teach because I mean, and and uh, 
there's no way around it except to, to get it's kind of like language immersion you, you know you right. can't learn a foreign language unless you immerse yourself right. learn, you know, taking it once a week doesn't work the, um, the, so. I learned a long time ago if you want to be a good writer there are two things you have to do one write every day and two read really good writing yeah. and the, that's how you it's just a it's a ground war you have to grind it out and that's the only way to get better yeah, I agree with that yeah um, so let's talk about some investors. What investors may have influenced your thinking about the relationship between the economy and markets? Well, I mean, it's not. I'm not really a guy who gets inspiration from, from gets his inspiration from investors. I mean, there, there. I what I have done over the years is that I find that. Um, it turns out in this job that being a macroeconomist is is only part of it. You have to understand financial markets mm-hmm. and, and how they work. And so over the years, kind of working really closely with people who cover credit, uh, the equity analysts, um, even today, you know, we, we in my own work now, we collaborate all the time with mm-hmm. the analysts and the other parts of uh, research because um, there's always some an angle that you didn't get. And uh, so it's not so much – it's it's that part. It's it's kind of combining the strategy, uh, because you know being in a one of the things you that's I think very important to clients is they don't want economists that where the there's this kind of strict uh, boundary line where you you make your Fed call, your inflation call, and your growth call, but you never make the next step into what does what it does mean? this mean for stocks and yeah. bonds? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you need to be able to do that, and that requ- and and so there needs to actually be some overlap between what the economist is doing and what the strategists are doing. Otherwise, the client's not getting a, a full story. So uh, that that that's I've been very important. I've heard the same thing from Byron Wien and from Ed Hyman. All of whom said the classic mistake is that here's the economic thesis, but no applicability to to markets. And yeah, and it, and and what you write about and what you, the questions you, you address, they have to be dictated by what the market cares about at the moment. They mm-hmm. can't be, this is an interesting topic and I'd like to write about it. It has to be all driven by. If, if what I want to do is say that clients are have a wrong idea about X, they're all obsessed about it. That's wrong. I'm going to explain why. That's what I want to write about. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about books. Uh, I I find myself fascinated by the reading list of people in our mm. business. What what are some of your favorite fiction or nonfiction, finance or nonfinance? I, I don't care. I, well, for me, one of the things is that well-written history I love. I mean, I just re- wrote. Uh, I, I'm, I just wrote. I, re- I just read um, Lawrence in Arabia. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, um, and um, yeah, a that great, came out what 40 a couple years. Ago? No, no. This is the, the recent, more recent, one. recent, recent. Uh, Who's recent. the author? Uh, actually, I can't remember off the top of my head. Lawrence in Arabia, not Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence. And the, the reason he calls it Lawrence in Arabia is because. He, you know, he's an outsider coming into, um, mm-hmm. and the the th- the book is fascinating because it it gives you this sense of the the underlying history of the Middle East, and you start to understand um, why the region is such a mess, right? Right, because he came in there in the middle of this. It's a tribal pl- place, and and. And the and some of the things that the the uh, imperial powers did there were 
uh, quite bad. You know, creating, so the yeah. the title is Lawrence in Arabia: War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, yep. and the Making of the Modern Middle East by Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson, there that's you go. it. Yep, uh, good that book. looks really interesting. It's a good book. Uh, the book it, I'm familiar with in that space is uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Right, but that's you know college. That's way way back when. Right, that, I think that was what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Was what uh, his yes. version of events. Which is interesting to kind of see the uh, uh, see the way the uh, Anderson uh, kind of evaluates that. But the, uh, so I, I love history. Uh, I, uh, I I've been reading since I was a kid. And give me another title. What else? Uh, what else stands out? Um, so uh, I'm really terrible at remembering authors. So Atkinson's uh, trilogy book on World War II, U.S. Uh, in in uh, Europe. Um, Army at Dawn, um, um, quite a, a, a quite a, a powerful story. It, it's it tells you a lot about how what a what, what a mess uh, it was when the U.S. entered Europe and you had a bunch of amateur generals basically really uh, trying to fight uh, the Germans. West Point history of World War Two is no, that no uh... no it would be Army at Dawn. The Jolly uh, Roger? No. Guns at Night? Uh, what, what are the other ones? Uh, uh, the Day of Battle, the, the war in battle. Sicily and Italy. Yeah, that's one of the three. Yeah. The Greats Who Changed the Course of British History. Oh, here it is. The Liberation Trilogy. Yep, the Liberation Trilogy, yep. And then there's also, um, oh, no, that's just, his, he just did the intro. Uh, I'll, I'll take a look at that. People always ask, uh, the, your guest mentioned a book, but I can't find it, so I always yeah. want to always so, want to track that down. Right. Um, last couple of questions we have. So, uh, you've been in this industry for a good couple of years. What has most notably changed since you began in this in this field? Um, I I would I would say that the uh, the, the 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 big changes has been the the regulation of financial markets and so it's been for remember that in reaction to a lot of scandals in the business um, back had, in two thousand and yeah you, all the stuff with the people writing emails that that did contradicted what their official mm-hmm. uh, publication we've had Henry Blodgett on the show yeah, he talked quite bluntly. And openly about yeah, that experience. Yeah, that, all that stuff um, has uh, turned it into a, v- a very heavily regulated business. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, the good news is that, you know, it's working um, mm-hmm. and you don't get that kind of behavior. The bad news is that it's the, the level of, of paperwork and and uh, that you have to go through is, is tremendous. And so from a day-to-day uh, point of view, that's been a, a big change. I don't think that the the business of being an economist has changed. It, we, it's always been, to my mind, uh, what I do is always about new questions come up and just being flexible about the way you address them and being ready to find new angles. It's not that I had a particular model that I used for years and it's not working. I've had to change my models. What's what's happened is you always have to change your models because right. the models are never adequate. There's always something going on that that requires a, a more uh, 
uh, a more judgmental and subtle analysis than just putting a bunch of equations on a paper. Yeah. So, so speaking of economics and, and economists, if you had a, uh, a millennial or someone coming right out of college now with an economics background, and they came to you and said, I'm, interesting in, in, I'm interested in pursuing a career in, as an economist on Wall Street, what sort of advice would you give that person? Well, I think mean, first of all, you the, there you you have to be a cautionary note about the this is a a, a, a shrinking business, frank, mm-hmm. frankly, right? So you've had headcount going down, and yeah, and and um, you know, kind of a an, uh, you know just a cost conscious world that we live in, um, and so it's a tough road. Um, and I think one one thing I would say to people who've had economics training is that there are a lot of things you can do with it. You don't have to become what I am, which is so an economist working in an economics team, you could be a strategist, you can be a portfolio manager. There are many things you can do. Economic, the, the great thing about economics is it's a disciplining of the way you think about the mm-hmm. world that makes it applicable to many things. So I, when I tell people, I often have um, – uh, you know, kids send me emails asking advice about you know who, who are coming out of college and stuff, and I, I I always give them that advice. If if you if you are absolutely in love with economics, go get a PhD, suffer through that. <laughs> um, if you're not absolutely in love with it, though, PhD is a tough road to go. Um, then you probably want to, you know, t- take a, a, you know, more of a business school approach or something. An, an yeah. MBA, unless you love economics, MBA is a better, better route. I think it's a better route. I think it's more flexible. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with an economics degree. I, I, I've always wanted to, to just be an economist, and so to me, that was never an option. I majored in economics when I got to college. I went straight to my PhD program. I, uh, you know, um, went straight into working at the Fed. There was never any kind of, I, I mean, I'm a pretty boring person, let's face it. Uh, there was <laughs> I never, wouldn't say that, <laughs> but you knew what you wanted to do, and, and, and I you did pursued yeah, that. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, there are lots of people who come out of college and say, now what? You know, they, yeah. you'd never had that issue. No, and I and I I'm pretty lucky too because I think that the 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 share, I mean, when I arrived at at college, you had about 300 pre med majors and 200 pre law majors, sure. and of course, by the end of uh, college, there are a lot fewer pre med and pre law people because that was the easy path. Pre-law and, uh, was what you did when you didn't know what you wanted to do. All right, I'm going to go to law school, and uh, it buys me three more years to right, figure it out. Right, and and so I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of people had a big learning process, and you know when you fin- a lot of kids come out of college, they're not sure what they do. So a lot of people uh, don't realize that to get a gig in radio, you actually need a legal degree. So <laughs> that's why I, I went that route. Um, um, our last question, and I ask this of everybody, and the answers vary dramatically. What is it that you know today about markets, about investing, about the economy that you wish you knew when you began 30 years or so ago? Mm. That's, a, that's a thoughtful tough one. pause. Yeah, a thoughtful pause as he freezes up. Um, <laughs> what, have, what have I learned that I wish 30 years ago? It's not just what you learned, it's what would have been of huge help. At the start of your career, that ten or twenty years later, you said, "If yeah. only I knew twenty years ago." 
I think that the 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 I think that what you learn um, is about learning to kind of uh, work in very high levels of uncertainty about mm-hmm. exactly what you're looking at and knowing uh, it's it's okay to be kind of lost for periods of time and, f- and to figure it out. Um, I, I've always felt that what happens in the in the economy is that something you, you get you get an event. You figure out the right angle, and if you get it right, if you figure out what's really the issue and, and how it's going to play out, your forecast just follows, and you become smart for a year. Right. And so it's that finding that it's finding the right angle on things that, uh, to me, was the thing that that makes you a good economist. And the other thing is knowing when to capitulate. Oh, right. I I didn't get the right angle. Admitting error. And, and I got and 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 the and maybe the lesson is that that I did learn was admitting errors is fine, sticking to wrong views in the face of the evidence that is wrong. But admitting errors, people respect that, especially if you're open and honest about it. You don't need to be right all the time. We all know that it's an art more than a science, and we get a lot of bad forecasts. So it's it's knowing when to capitulate uh, is is another kind of key life lesson there. Ethan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has this has really been quite fascinating, and I'm really glad we had a chance to uh, sit down and, and go over the stuff. We'll have to drag you to another one of those dinners with less people um, this time. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see the full run uh, of previous uh, conversations we've had, or, or go to the blog and, and click podcasts, and you'll see the full run of all, I think we're up to 82 or so of, of these conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Mike Batnick, and my producer, uh, Charlie Vollmer, and uh, Taylor Riggs, my booker, and today Charlie is also my engineer. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for, for helping put this together. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.